As we were uh, singing that, I just kind of got this, um, or singing one of those songs, I just kind of got this picture. I'm thinking of, obviously I'm thinking of Colossians because that's what I'm preaching on today, but um, of Paul's opening there, of Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and he writes to the saints and um, faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae. And I was just thinking about preaching a sermon um, to you guys from Trey. (laughs) And... uh, as I was picturing you, I just, this might sound strange to some of you, but I just was like thinking about how God sees you. And I just saw like a radiating glow coming off of you. Just a sense of like God deeply loves you and he cares about you. He like has good intentions for you and for your life. And so my hope for today is just that you have a better understanding of who God is and who you are now because of him that that glow, you might not feel it, you might not see it, but because of what Jesus has done, he has fundamentally changed everything. And if you follow after Jesus, you are adopted into his family, and if you're not uh, a follower of Jesus, you're invited to be a part of it, to join, to join with him. And thinking about this, like, thinking about, ooh, I'm gonna knock something over, that's not, not safe for me, I'm a klutz. Um, thinking about this and how, how we see things, uh, Our perception affects our experience of reality. Who you think you are, what you think about yourself, what you think about other people, all of these things play into how you view and experience the world in your life. It's fascinating how much perception affects us. Um, About uh, five years ago now, um, I was serving as a student pastor. And we had uh, just started the journey towards like moving towards planting a church. We just announced to um, the church I was on staff at that that's what we were planning to do. And I was away at summer camp. And um, I got a call from Anna uh, because Anna was at home and she noticed that the dog we had at at the time, that's a story for another time about our experience with dogs. Um, But she noticed the dog we had at the time was outside on our driveway. And she knew she came home at lunch and put the dog inside. So she went over to a friend's house, called her parents, they went over to our house, and uh, sure enough, our house had been broken into. I mean, they took all sorts of stuff, big things, little things, household items, all sorts of stuff. Um, I don't know if you've ever had something like broken into your home or your car, it's pretty violating, right? Um, They never caught the people, but Anna called me and I came back from camp for like the night, and um, for a while after, every time I saw a like white van a big white van, I thought maybe this person is the one who stole from us. Did I know it was a white van? Nope. Did we see the car? Nope. Do I know any of that? Nope. But every time I saw like a white van or maybe even a trailer, I was like, oh, maybe they're the people that stole it. I mean, I remember going to music stores uh, and like a pawn shop going to look and see if they had my guitars. Of course, I never found any of those things. And my perception has shifted since then. I no longer see white vans in the, same, uh, in the same sort of light. But my point is, my experience of what happened to me affected the way that I saw something, even something like a white van. And as I mentioned, this was in the process of us starting this church. We just told the church I was on staff at um, that we felt like God was calling us to start the church. And we didn't know much of anything then. We didn't know uh, what it would be called. Uh, we didn't know fully like who would go with us. We didn't know where we would meet. We didn't know a lot of the details yet. But as we started taking steps to doing what we thought God was leading us to do, we started feeling opposition. 
uh, a number of things happened other than this, but making us feel unsafe, unsettled in the place that we felt called to start a church. It really felt like spiritual attack. And one day, uh, one of my friends who I'd spent some time with in East Africa called me out of the blue. And we'd experienced a lot of stuff together, seen God do some incredible things and walk through some things together. But um, he called me and we talked for maybe five minutes and I don't know if I've even talked to him since. But he called me. Um, I think he, looking back, he probably had a prompting from the Holy Spirit. And he called me and said, uh, asked me what was going on and I told him what had happened. And he said, man, the enemy is so dumb sometimes. The enemy is so dumb sometimes because the more he takes away, the less you have to lose. Those words altered my perception of reality, that whenever more things became difficult, when things, uh, other things happened, I felt incredibly vested in it at that point. My house has already been broken into. Later we lost a dog. We had all sorts of other stuff. I'm really vested at this point. It affected the way that I saw my reality you see, our perception affects us, how we experience what is, what's in front of us, our stories, our backgrounds, our cultural upbringings, our pain, all of it. What we believe about God, ourselves, and others affects how we experience the lives that we live. And today, that's what we're going to talk about, what you believe about God, what you believe about yourself, and what you believe about other people. And we're going to do this by looking at a couple verses that are very easy to look over. If you are here last week, we talked about them too. We're looking at the first two verses in Colossians. Here they are. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So this is a letter, the opening to a letter, and at first glance, it may seem like all this is about is saying to and from. From Paul and Timothy to the church in Colossae. Here you go. Grace and peace to you. But there's a lot in, in between here that I think have profound implications in your life and mine. I think actually the first two verses set up how we should understand the rest of the letter concerning the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And last week at Church Around the Table, we talked about these two verses and looked at three things. Remember who God is, remember who you are, and remember who we are to each other. And we talked about this around the table together, which one's easier for you, which one's harder. And today we're just going to build on that, talking about who God is, who you are, and who we are to each other. But first, a little context on this book. So the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison, which we learn later in the letter. He's writing it uh, alongside Timothy to Jesus' followers in Colossae, which is a town in what is now modern-day Turkey. Um, and in this letter, Paul addresses some problems. Now, the exact nature of them, we're not entirely sure, but in essence, Paul writes this letter to encourage people to remain true to Jesus, to remain true to the good news of Jesus, to the gospel, that Jesus changes everything. And it seems that perhaps the followers of Jesus in Colossae had been exposed to false teaching that Paul regarded as subversive to the faith. One commentator named Ralph Martin said this could have even been unconscious, like they had been unconsciously taught things that were actually subversive to what the gospel is. And so what we see later in this letter is that this threat that Paul is addressing is both in the realm of doctrine or what we believe and ethics or what we do, how we live. It had both theological and practical elements. It likely uh, was a combination of pagan and distorted Jewish thought. And it seems that Paul's primary audience here, though, was uh, Gentile believers. And Paul had never met these people. 
He didn't start this church. It seems one of his co-workers had, someone named Epiphras. So that's a little about Colossae. Paul is writing to them seemingly to encourage them to remember the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to remain true to it, that it has changed your life as we read, and so allow it to continue to do so and see how it's doing in other people too. He calls them back to this message. Remember the gospel. Don't listen to the false teaching and instead continue to be formed by Jesus to look more like him. Don't fall victim to false teachings, but instead believe what is true and live in accordance with it. And as I mentioned, I think these first two verses set us up for some key things to notice in the rest of the letter. The first one is how Paul describes himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, perhaps as a more literal translation. An apostle is one who carries a message, one who was sent. So who is he an apostle of? Of Christ. What's the message? The gospel. He tells it later in the book. The message that he carries is the gospel, to carry and communicate this message given to him by Jesus. So that's one, a centerpiece of the letter, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Focus on that. And then the second thing uh, comes uh, a little bit more subtly, is in the first person plural and family references used, where Paul says, our brother Timothy, um, he talks about faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, and then he says, our father indicating there's the message of the gospel that both pertains to our relationship with God and with one another. So the beginning of the letter sets us up to focus on both of these things, what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about others, and how that affects how we live with God and live with other people. So first thing, remember, remember who God is. For Paul, all of this points back to Jesus He is sent by Jesus. You see, an apostle is like a messenger, a delegate, or as one lexicon described apostle, as one sent forth with orders. In other words, Paul is carrying something that was given to him. It didn't originate with him or ultimately point to him. Paul's purpose of existence was not ultimately about him. His central concern was Jesus, to know him, to know who he is, to trust him, to follow him, and encourage other people to do the same. Why? Paul had had a radical encounter with Jesus on the the road to Damascus. His name was Saul, and he was persecuting Christians. And then he went from that to being one who now here is imprisoned for the sake of the gospel and saying, I am committed to this. The message that I carry has power. It totally radically changed his life. So he points back to this. So what do we see about God in this passage? Who is this one who Paul is following? We see a couple things. We see this reference to Christ Jesus, Christ being the fulfiller of Israelite expectation of a deliverer. It means anointed one or Messiah, or another lexicon said it's of the coming king whom the Jews expected to be the savior of the nation and the author of their highest felicity. In other words, Christ signifies the fulfillment of this expectation. He doesn't exist in a vacuum. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. He's the true and better Adam, inaugurating a new way of being human. He's the true and better Moses, leading us out of slavery of our sin and into the freedom of Christ. He's the true and better David, the priest king, offering us relationship with the Father and being the one who we can have ultimate allegiance towards. He is the promised one who reverses the evil and brokenness in the world. So saying he's an apostle of Christ, Jesus is saying the brokenness that you see in the world the evil that you see, what seems wrong in the world, I know the one who is coming, who has come and is coming back to make all things right. I'm an apostle of the one who can make things right and who is and will forever do so. 
We see this Messiah foretold in the early pages of the Bible after Adam and Eve sinned against God. After being deceived by a serpent, God promises that one will come who will crush the serpent's head and destroy evil, and in the process, the serpent will bite his heel. And we see this in the person of Jesus who takes the consequences of evil upon himself and dies on the cross for our sins, making it seem like the serpent wins, but he doesn't because Jesus raises from the dead, demonstrating his power over sin and death, offering us a way to confront evil in our own lives now. But obviously things aren't all right yet. And so the story of the Bible ends with a story when Jesus comes back to finish the job, destroying the snake once and for all and making all things right. So Christ Jesus carries a ton of significance, tying it back into this story. Secondly, we see it with this language of will. Now, that's a subject for a lot of theological debate and very uh, dense books to get into what is the will of God and how do I know it and what exactly is the will of God? How does that work? Simply put, what I want you to get for today is that God cares. God cares. God cares about what you do. God cares about your life. God cares about who you're becoming. He seems to have a desire, plan, and intention for Paul and for others to hear this message that he has to bring in other places. We see that he has good plans for your life. Like he cares about you. I think sometimes we can get so sidelined by all the conversations on how exactly does that play out that we forget the simplicity. He cares. Then we see the language of father as well. Now, there's a couple uh, factors to this. Um, First, he says, our father, uh, indicating that it's not just Paul's father or the father of the religious elite, but all who follow after Jesus get to call him father. There's not some extra spiritual privilege that you get by being in a position of spiritual influence. So that's one side. It also has connotations of the one who life stems from. So in this, we have a connotation of both power of God's bigness and the intimacy that we're able to have. Our Father both signifies God's power and majesty and also the intimate relationship we're able to have. And who is, what is he like? He's a giver of grace and peace. Grace meaning a free gift from God and peace being what we talked about in December about shalom, the peace of God, the flourishing of all people. So what we think about God matters and affects how we experience him or don't. And of course, God has a way of shattering expectations. Don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I certainly have, and I'm thankful for how he has. But sometimes we aren't open. Sometimes we're not paying attention. It's really interesting. Sometimes we look to things to reinforce what we already believe. Maybe you've uh, read enough Facebook comment words to see that people going back and forth and just looking to prove prove what they already believe. There was one study uh, where people were asked to do math equations. Any math people in the room? Anybody? Okay, looking at my father-in-law who's an accountant. Okay, y'all are good math people. Clearly I might not be because I'm calling you math people. (laughs) I used to be back in the day. But these math equations in this study, they were uh, not just like math equations for the sake of problem solving. They were uh, used to verify truth of a research finding, like whether, not to try try to open up a can of worms, but just so you get, uh, get the gist of it, like whether banning guns saves lives or whether a vaccine is effective or not. Here's what is fascinating, and I'm quoting here. As predicted, people with greater math skills were able to figure out the answers more easily, but only when the result of the calculation didn't contradict their political beliefs. 
If it did, everyone's math was worse. They solved the problem correctly 25 to 45% less often. Fascinating, right? I read another, um, another study that, um, or about another study about uh, people who were, judges who were hungry and how much less likely they are to like, let people out on parole. Ooh, little, little freaky. My, my point is our feelings, our, our perception affects then what we see to be true. A.W. Tozer, I think, was getting at this when he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you think God doesn't exist, likely you're probably going to see everything as pointing to God not existing. If you have a perception of God that God is a harsh judge and doesn't really care about you or is distant, you're probably going to interpret everything through that light. And the scary part is that a lot of this is in our subconscious, things that we're not totally aware of. But if you think God is kind, if you think he is for you, if you think he loves you, if you think he has good plans for you, if you really come to believe that, then I think you start to see how God is working in those ways in your life. So I don't know where you stand with God today, but let me just ask this, what if, what if the God of the Bible is real? What if, it, what if Jesus is who he says he is? What if Jesus really did raise from the dead? What if that is true? How then does that affect the way that we see the rest of our life? Like if we think about it, if we worship one who raised from the dead, couldn't he do all sorts of powerful things in our life today? But yet a lot of us might exist more as like functionally atheist or agnostic, like God is not actually intricately involved in our life. But I mean, the message of Jesus begins, well, begins in the Old Testament, but his earthly life with the incarnation, him coming and putting on flesh, dwelling amongst us, being present with us. If that is true, then wouldn't it make sense that he is continuing to be who he is? So for the, I'm conflating my words here, derainment, it's not derainment, der, Duration, why am I thinking derainment? For the duration of our time together. What if, what if this stuff is true? Will you be open for like 30 minutes? I'm not preaching for 30 minutes more, but would you be open for our time together? So let me pray this for us. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts? God, I pray just even right now that you highlight areas in us that we don't believe you to be who you say you are. Highlight them to us. Confront those lies that we believe so that we can trust you more fully. Show us who you are. Lord, help us to be open. Whatever is hindering us from that right now, in Jesus' name, I pray that you remove. Show us your glory. Show us who you are. Show us your presence. Be with us now, or rather, fix our eyes on how you are. You are here. And Lord, as you speak to us, I pray that you don't, you help us not fall into a trap of thinking it's just a coincidence in this moment, but that it is an answer to prayer, that you are here, that you are for us, and that you are speaking to us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So responding to this thing from uh, A.W. Tozer, C.S. Lewis wrote this, I believe it was in The Weight of Glory. He said, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. 
Don't you love theological writers just going back and forth and arguing with good points with one another? He said, how God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar that it is related to how he thinks of us. I'm not here to argue which one's more right or wrong. I think Tozer's maybe is more about our experience of it, and C.S. Lewis's is more about what is true. So how do we learn about us and who you are? What does your like, self-talk sound like? When you mess up, what type of things do you hear in your head? Where do those voices come from? Who told you that? For a more exhaustive list on who you are, I encourage you to spend some time reading through places like Ephesians 1. But simply, every person, regardless of whether you follow Jesus or not, every single person is made in the image of God, regardless of your, um, your background, regardless of your pain, regardless of mental capacity, where you are in life, anything. Every single person is made in the image of God, made to reflect God into the world, given a purpose in life, and invited, I believe, to be part of the family of God, worthy of dignity, value, respect, and love. It's a fundamental, I believe, Christian teaching. And all who follow Jesus are adopted children of God, invited to be part of God's family and adopted into that. So in this passage, we see a couple things about who we are. First, what's noteworthy is Paul is writing to a group of people he doesn't know. He's not met these people. If you, uh, does anybody like meet and greets? Anybody like meet and greets in a situation? Okay, some extroverts in the room. Okay, not a fan. I don't, they make me nervous. My social anxiety flares up. I'd, I'm the guy that would like to stand on the outskirts of the, you can always tell the introverts because they're on the outskirts of like the circle and the extroverts move more in the middle, typically. But it's fascinating because in the beginning of this letter to people he doesn't know, he appeals not to his accolades. He doesn't appeal to this, these are the like practical reasons you should listen to me. He appeals to, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus that he had this encounter with God that fundamentally changed his life. So if I may offer us this point, if God calls you to something, he doesn't need you to have a big list of accolades. If God calls you and you're like, man, I'm not a good public speaker, and God calls you to preach in front of people, like, he meant for you to do it, not somebody else. He's not surprised by who he called. He knew when he called Paul that he had been persecuting Christians, and how ironic now that he is being persecuted for being a Christian. But how much more powerful, because you can point to it and say, this is only because of God. If God calls you to something, he doesn't need you to be a better you, older you, more fit you. He doesn't need that. He needs you to be willing and say yes. The question is, will you? Will you say yes? As a personal example, I mentioned about being an introvert, and that's something I've, um, and I mentioned having social anxiety, which is a lot better now, but um, that surprised me when my psychiatrist years ago told me. I was like, what do I have? I was hoping he was going to say, like, depression and anxiety. He got into that, too. That was a little bit longer diagnosis. Um, <laughs> but he said social anxiety was the first thing he listed, and I was like, I work at a church. How? Like, I talk in front of, like, How? When he explained it more and I looked into it, oh, that, that, yeah, that makes, um, that makes total sense. But in starting a church, um, if you ever hang around with other people who start churches, they tend to be, not always, but more extroverted, outgoing, uh, bubbly, 
hey, let's all come hang out. We can do this really fun thing together. And I love people like that. I need them in my life. I was more the guy like, hi, my name is Trey, and I've struggled with depression and anxiety. Nice to meet you. <laughs> and so I wrestled with that, right? Because I didn't fit the mold that I thought I saw. Like, I need to be alone. I need to spend a lot of time, like, praying and thinking and writing. Like, I need, in research, like, I need that. But I've come to believe that God wired me a particular way on purpose, that it wasn't accidental. They didn't call me to do this work and then just is mad at me because I'm not something other than what I am. But instead, as I've come to embrace who he has called me to be, it's actually led me into more freedom and beauty and actually helped me to celebrate people who were different than me and realize my need for other people in my life. So that's one. Secondly, uh, Paul primarily points to a message that he carries. While he's an apostle, there's something similar for us to know, that we are called to know Jesus and make him known. We see also that he refers to people who follow Jesus as saints. That's a common refrain. Holy ones, set apart, defined not by what they've done, but defined ultimately by who he is and what he has done. Brothers and sisters adopted into God's family. And then there's this, this line in here that's really easy to gloss over. I can't remember what the New Living Translation said. So um, it says, holy people in the city of Colossae. Another translation might say, um, saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. So there's two prepositional phrases there, in Christ, in Colossae. The, the assumption is that your primary identity, being in Christ, where you exist in the spiritual realm, has implications for how you exist in Colossae. So throughout the letter, Paul calls them back to, you are in Colossae, but exist in the reality that you are in Christ. So let me phrase it this way for us. Our primary identity is being in Christ, and that ought to affect everything else that we do. So I am in Christ in Nashville. The distinction might be not to put too much emphasis on where the words fall, but like sometimes we think I'm in Nashville in Christ, meaning I interpret my relationship with Christ primarily through being in Nashville or where I am, and then I judge God based on how he fits into here. But this is saying you are in Christ, that's your primary identity, and that has implications for every single aspect of your life. Later in the letter, we get into like some household uh, relationships and other things. And the fundamental idea is that who we are in Christ affects how we operate in every other aspect of our life. So how do I be in Christ in my marriage? How do I be in Christ in my job? How do I be in Christ in my singleness? Or how do I be in Christ with my finances or with stewarding my sexuality? How do I be in Christ in, in the car? I mean, just fill in the blank. How do I be in Christ, my primary identity, in all of these secondary and tertiary things? That this primary thing is meant to have drastic implications in every other aspect of our life. So more could be said here, but the way you think of yourself has drastic implications for the way you experience reality. If you have a voice in your head from your childhood or from a previous partner or from a person in your life telling you something like, you're dumb or you're a failure, likely you're going to interpret all sorts of things in your life through that. So you're in conflict. It's not that uh, you made a mistake, it's that you are a mistake, or maybe uh, maybe it's not that. Maybe you think not that the other person made a mistake. You are the mistake. <laughs> or instead of thinking, I did a dumb thing, or this is just a difference of opinion, you think, I'm dumb, 
or I'm not dumb, they're dumb. If instead, over time, you become familiar with the voice of love, calling you into intimacy with Jesus to define you, not by what you've done, but by who you belong to, no matter what comes, you know you are deeply loved and drawn deeper into love. Mistakes, rather than yelling at you that you're a failure, become an opportunity to turn back to God and to become more of a person of love. The gospel is good news that we're able to be made right with God and be formed into who we're created to be. You don't have to believe the lies you hear about who you are. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but does anybody else in here struggle with doubt sometimes? Whether doubt about God, doubt about yourself, doubt about what you're called to do. Do you doubt your doubts? Do you? Who told you these things? Who told you these things that you've come to believe to be true? Um, I carried with me a devotional today um, that a lot of us uh, let shape us. Oh, that's an old picture. Of, oh, that's cute. Um, that's an old picture of our uh, two-year-old. That's very sweet. I put it on some do not disturb mode, and it went to a different thing than I've seen in a minute, and now I'm distracted being a dad. Um, but I brought with me a devotional today, something that we often read in the beginning of the morning. Uh, some of us go check email, some of us go on social media, some of us, you know, do a number of different things. What do you think this is teaching you about who you are? What is it making you feel? Feel like you're not enough? Feel like you're not far along enough in your life? Feel like you've missed the mark? Let me be someone else today who tells you who you are. You are loved. You are known, you are welcome, you are belong, you are invited to be a part of God's family, and God is going to great lengths to have a relationship with you. Like, hear me out. What if right now is a way that God wants to tell you that he is still with you? Okay, maybe, maybe it's coincidence, but what if it's not? Like, what if he is here right now speaking to you in this moment? Like, what if that is true? God is going to great relationships lengths to have a relationship with you. You don't have to have it all together. And all of this, like what we think about God, what we think about ourselves, have drastic implications on how we see other people. I love how Paul refers to other people here as saints, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And he goes on later to say, don't be swayed by all these other things. But he starts with, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters, do you think such things about other people? Do you treat them as such? It's an election year. I think we're going to have lots of opportunities to find out how we think about other people. Um, I just finished uh, listening to a guy named Eugene Peterson's uh, biography um, called A Burning in My Bones. Eugene Peterson uh, translated the message uh, Bible. Uh, and I like teared up several times and then cried again. I like knew he passed away, but I still like cr I cried. <laughs> listening to this book. And one of the things that really like struck me about Eugene Peterson's life that was a common refrain was his like anti-celebrity persona. He had a draw to be famous. He had a draw to make an influence. He had a draw to do all of that. And that's why he was so, I think, worried about it or anti that. But one of the refrains that you would hear in the and like people talking about him is that he saw everyday, ordinary, normal people as being made in the image of God. Like, I think they said stories of him letting, like, well-known people go to voicemail, but, like, being there for his, you know, 
200, 300-person church and like picking up the phone for the everyday normal butcher who calls him, sitting down with people, seeing the image of God in every single person. Do you? Though we're different, all followers of Jesus equally belong to him. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have relational or emotional wounds that affect how you view and interact with people? Sometimes uh, when we have wounds, we interpret things that other people do through that lens. And you might see it differently if your lived experience was different. Now, some of this can be good. Uh, You can be more aware of certain things that other people are not aware of because of their experience. But like hypothetically, let's say you grew up in a place where your parents would lose it over the tiniest little thing. So you become hyper aware of anything that could potentially make somebody upset. And you were so afraid as a kid that you would hide. So now a tiny comment, a facial expression sets your emotions and your body alight with feelings. Whether or not that person did anything on that level, it's really hard. I remember a little while ago, I was like praying and processing with, with God about some of my, my things that like affect the way that I view people and myself. And I was like, God, will I always feel this way? Like, because it's really annoying. Like, I'm praying to you and I'm asking you and I'm like trying. I'm trying, like, I know this stuff to be true. And I just like felt the most tender and compassionate and kind response from God. Some form of, I am healing you. And there will come a day when this is not the way that you always feel. There will come a day when you will be able to be aware of the pain and this, like, all of these intimate feelings and also not have those things affect you to the way that they do, but not lose your empathy. Um, And as I was like praying last night and thinking about about this message uh, for today, I got another uh, picture because I I think some of us in the room, probably if I say this, like some of us view other people through our wounding, you know that, and maybe your wounding also gets mad at yourself for having said wounding. Do you know what I mean? Um, And then you belittle yourself for feeling that and then wishing that I would feel anything other than what I actually feel. It's a whole vicious cycle. God has compassion on the parts of you that do not have compassion on those parts of you. Um, Trying to listen to see. um, So let's see if this will be helpful. Um, This is coming to my mind. Um, A little while ago, so I'm, a big believer in like what's known as internal family systems therapy or parts therapy. It's been super helpful for me. If you ever seen the movie Inside Out, that's kind of an, um, an idea of it. Um, and one of the things about parts therapy is that you have all these different competing things in you. So like you're mad, um, but then you're like upset with yourself for being mad. And then you know, you've got all these different things that are competing. Um, and part of the idea about parts therapy is that each part has a role, but oftentimes they're in unhealthy roles because of where they had to function at different points in your life. Um, and I have a couple parts that say some pretty awful things. I'm gonna leave it at that. Maybe you do too. And there was one in particular that I just, whenever I would feel, I would just ignore, or like push it aside, or like, ooh, I don't, uh, not gonna mention that one. And like a couple weeks ago, maybe a month or two, um, I just felt an invitation to like ask that part, like, why are you here? Like in a kind way, like, what are you doing? And it was just like here to let you know your feelings are really valid. And I'm yelling at you to let you know. And since then, 
I mean, it's only been two months, so we'll see what happens six months from now. Um, it has fundamentally changed the way that I interact with that part. And I say that to say, God has compassion on those parts of you that seem like they are not worthy of compassion. Those parts of you that belittle you, God sees them and he loves you and he invites it to come into his presence to experience healing that only comes from him. And as I was praying through this last night, the picture I got was like of God coming to like lay hands on you um, or Jesus coming to and what I saw so visibly was like the nail scars in his hands coming. We see the world through our wounds. But my question is, do we see them more primarily through our wounds or through his? This is not a quick fix, always, but I think that's what God wants for us over time to help us see things through his wounds and not ours. And once again, to clarify, how are you viewing yourself now? Are you viewing it through your wounds or through his and the compassion that he feels towards you? So I'm gonna invite the band, um, the band to come back up as I give us these prompts to pray through and respond to. What if this Jesus stuff is true? What if it's true? What if even though you've grown up with it your entire life, what if there is another level of intimacy with him that you still do not believe is possible? Like what if you still have this nagging suspicion in your brain that God wants to make your life miserable? Do you doubt that? What if God actually has good plans for you? And to clarify, those plans often do involve pain not saying life is without pain. As Jesus said, in this world you'll have troubles, but take heart for I've overcome the world. What if the stuff that the scriptures teach you about is true? So the prayer for today is simple. I want you just to ask again, Holy Spirit, would you highlight areas in my life that I do not believe what you say about who God is, about who I am and who other people are? Would you highlight that to me? As I heard a pastor named Francis Chan say, God, show me where I'm being deceived right now. Are you open? So let me pray for us and then we will um, stand in response. Come Holy Spirit. God, I don't pray that um, to say you're not already here. I say that to say we welcome you. We want you. God, I confess I know, like even within me, but I know in this room too that there are parts of us that are like averse to that. God, meet us. Speak to us in a way that only you can. Lord, as we respond to what you've said, as we respond to who you are, God, just, just draw us into deeper intimacy with you. Help us to love you, to cherish you, to delight in your presence, to be able to say with like assurance, as the psalmist does, the one thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Help us to be captivated by your beauty, by your majesty, by your power, by your authority, by just you with all of that being here now with us. For those that feel forgotten, I pray that they see that, God, this message isn't just about us remembering remembering you, you have remembered us. In fact, you've never forgotten us. You've never forsaken us. You've never left us. You are after us. 
So God, I pray that those that feel forgotten know that you have never forgotten about them. those that feel overwhelmed with grief or pain or sadness or anxiety will just say, as we look up, see you with us, the compassionate one, the God who is with us, the one who weeps with us, the one who is with us in our joy and our pain. God, I pray that you bring healing for our souls, that you correct the lies that we believe about ourselves and others in you. And I pray you do all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Hey, thanks for watching the service. We pray that it blessed you and helped you grow closer to God. If you are in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us sometime. If you're not in the Nashville area, we'd love to help you get connected with the local church if you don't already have one. We pray that God blesses you this week and that he grows you closer in your relationship with him and with your community, that he uses you in a powerful way to be a vessel of his good news in everywhere that you go. May God bless you.